This week, Cedril emerges from bankruptcy, Toys R Us liquidation continues, Reorg reports that David's bridal is soliciting refinancing proposals. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico and Venezuela. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Karen Lang, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. And I'm Stephen Opper. This week, we hear from Reorg's European team as they discuss recent developments in the Italian telecommunications market, focusing on Telecom Italia and Windre. They also provide the latest on Danaus and Noble Group. It's Sunday, July 8th. Cedril emerged from Chapter 11 this week after their reorganization plan went effective Monday. The plan equitized about $2.4 billion of unsecured bonds, more than $1 billion in contingent new-build obligations, substantial unliquidated guarantee obligations, and $250 million in unsecured interest rate and currency swap claims. Trading in the new equity began on Tuesday, and 16 million shares will initially be listed on the New York and Oslo stock exchanges, with 84 million to be listed, quote, in the coming weeks. Separately, on Tuesday, the English High Court ruled in favor of Cedril Partners in the West Leo drilling contract dispute with Tolo Ghana. Cedril Partners is expected to receive $195 million from Tolo, which may be used towards repayment of the company's term loan B. This follows a similar situation where Vantage Drilling was awarded $622 million from Petrobras, also for breach of contract. On Monday this week, the Toys R Us debtors Propco 2 and Giraffe Jr. Holdings filed an amended plan and disclosure statement. The amended filings provide recoveries based on the commercial mortgage pass-through certificates, agreed credit bid of $480 million. Recoveries for mortgage lenders range from approximately 95% to 98%. At a hearing later on Monday, the disclosure statement was approved by Judge Keith Phillips on a conditional basis, allowing the debtors to proceed with solicitation. Then on Tuesday, Toys filed a summary store closure report for the Delaware entities detailing what stores were closed and gross revenue from the sold assets. In aggregate, closing sales posted a little over $180 million in merchandise revenue. The filing related to waves 1 and 1.5 and were split between reports from Hilco Gordon Brothers and Tiger Great American. Both reports state that a separate report will be filed with respect to wave 2 and the balance of the store closing sales, which concluded on or about June 30th, 2018. REARC has learned that David's bridal has solicited and received third-party refinancing proposals. The refinancings would address the company's existing $490 million term loan and $125 million undrawn ABL revolving credit facility. According to sources, the company's advisors, Debevoise and Plimpton and Evercore, have simultaneously been in discussions with advisors to the company's existing creditors. A group of the company's term loan lenders, represented by Jones Day as legal counsel and Greenhill as financial advisor, is working on developing its own proposal to submit to the company, sources say. The group, whose advisors have been completing due diligence, are preparing a term sheet that would contemplate either a paydown of their loan with proceeds from the refinancing, or a restructuring support agreement that would see the lenders receive ownership of the company in a Chapter 11 scenario, sources add. Additionally, the company's capital structure includes $270 million in unsecured notes due in October 2020, and a large holder of those notes has retained Mollison Company and Paul Weiss as financial and legal advisors, 
while a minority note holder group is being advised by Freed Frank as legal counsel, according to sources. The maturity on the company's ABL springs to July 2019 if the term loan is not refinanced at that time. The company ended its first quarter with approximately $120 million of liquidity. On the island of Puerto Rico, Governor Ricardo Rosselló and the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority, or AAFAF, sued the Permisa Oversight Board in Puerto Rico's Title III cases on Thursday. In the adversary complaint, the plaintiffs say they seek to, quote, foil the Oversight Board's unlawful attempts to usurp the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico's political and governmental powers and right to home rule, end quote. Over the past several months, say the plaintiffs, the Oversight Board has used the fiscal plan and budget certification processes under PROMISA to impose its policy preferences on Puerto Rico's people over the objections of Puerto Rico's elected government. The lawsuit came on the heels of the Oversight Board certifying its own version of the fiscal 2019 budget and certifying a modified Commonwealth fiscal plan last week after the legislature failed to repeal Law 80, Puerto Rico's Wrongful Dismissal Act. According to PROMISA board members, the amended fiscal plan cuts a projected 30-year surplus of nearly $40 billion to about $14 billion, making restructuring more challenging. The Oversight Board has released a statement saying that it will, quote, vigorously defend against any suit attempting to thwart the carrying out of the budget and fiscal plan, end quote. Turning to Venezuela, members of the European Parliament are urging the government of President Nicolas Maduro to accept humanitarian aid as the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela continues to escalate. The parliament also called on the European Union to release additional funds to help Venezuelans fleeing the country as the massive exodus of Venezuelans seeking asylum across the globe deepens. The resolution was approved Thursday, adding political pressure to the Maduro regime. Hyperinflation, according to the resolution citing the IMF, is expected to reach 13,000% this year up from 2,400% in 2017, and produces a sharp loss of income while increasing poverty rates, quote, resulting in a mounting death toll and increasing numbers of refugees and migrants as the domestic health system deteriorates. Other top red stories of the week were, one, Steinhoff reaches agreement with various creditor clusters on key commercial terms for a structuring plan. Two, Jones Energy amends credit facility. In Nine West, Judge Chapman enforces J. Alex protocol, rejects U.S. trustee challenge to retention of distressed management consultants. And now we'll pass it over to Angelo Thalassinos for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Thanks, Karen. Glad to have a semi-recurring role, much like Dr. Drake Ramore on Days of Our Lives. Now that we have celebrated Independence Day and the 14-year anniversary of Greece's improbable Euro 2004 victory, we can really get into the third quarter. While events are largely focused in the courtroom this week, the headliner may be Thursday's Federal Communications Commission open meeting, where the commission will consider an order and notice of proposed rulemaking to make mid-band spectrum available for expanded flexible use. Any proposed rulemaking could affect a number of companies, including Intelsat. The week begins with an omnibus hearing in the Gibson Brands Chapter 11 and a telephonic status conference in the First Energy Debtors' ongoing litigation with respect to the rejection of several burdensome power purchase agreements. Tuesday brings an iHeartMedia Chapter 11 omnibus hearing, which will include consideration of a requested 180-day extension of the debtors' exclusive periods to file and solicit a plan of reorganization. 
Wednesday includes the purchase price reduction hearing in the Weinstein Company Chapter 11 and a final dip hearing for Rex Energy. Toys R Us has a scheduled auction Thursday for certain second-wave properties. In the Federal District Court in Delaware on Thursday, Judge Leonard Stark will preside over oral argument in the Millennium Health Opt-Out Lender's Appeal of the Bankruptcy Court's decision to grant the non-consensual third-party releases in Millennium's prepackaged plan of reorganization. To conclude the week, Pacific Drilling faces another extended expiration of the debtor's exclusive plan filing period and the initial mediation period on July 13th. The case has recently seen a flurry of activity, including competing restructuring proposals between majority shareholder Quantum Pacific and certain SSCF lenders on the one hand, and an ad hoc group of secured lenders on the other hand. This week, I will leave you with an inspiration from Aristotle. We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit. Now back to you, Stephen. Thanks, Angelo. I'm going to hand it off to Ben Kavaka and Luca Rossi in London now to discuss the latest from their side of the pond. Thanks and welcome to this month's Catch-Up on International Credits. My name is Benjamin Kovaka, and I'm Distressed Debt Analyst here in our London office. And with me, I have Luca Rossi, who covers a distress uh, situations in Italy and European financials. Uh, Luca, so there's been a lot of activity in the Italian telecommunication market recently. Could you give us some color on the situation? Sure, Ben. Thanks. So Italy's uh, telecommunication market is the fourth biggest market in Europe after the UK, the German and the French uh, markets. Broadband services have reached a penetration of 62% in Italy as of June 2017, compared to 78% in Germany, 79% in Spain, 94% in the UK and 96% in France. When it comes to mobile, Italy has one of the highest penetration rate in Europe. The Italian mobile market is uh, uh, characterized by lower levels of average revenue per user, the so-called ARPU, compared to the other European markets. The existing low mobile ARPU levels in Italy make it more challenging to disrupt the market using a price discount strategy, but we will come back to this later. So the three uh, main champions in the Italia telecom communication market are Telecom Italia, which has a 30.5% of uh, market share, Windtre, which now has a 33.2% of market share, and Vodafone with a 29% uh, market share. So we were talking about the difficulty to disrupt this market. There is a new operator which is trying its luck at the moment. It's the French company Iliad, which launched in Italy on May 19, offering a mobile package costing 5.99 euros per month to its first million clients with the aim at winning at least 10% market share in the country to reach a break even. The offer includes uh, 30 gigabytes of traffic and uh, unlimited voice minutes in 62 countries. This is why Windtra's cheapest offer is 7 euro per month with uh, 500 minutes of phone calls and 5 gigabytes of traffic. Kena, which is Telecom Italia's low-cost operator, offers 200 minutes of calls and 200 megabytes of internet at 2 euros per month, just two. Around one week ago, uh, even Vodafone launched its uh, discount operator called Ho, HO, including 30 gigabytes per month, unlimited calls and texts for 6.99 euros per month. 
So I guess we will understand more of the success or not of Iliad in the third quarter of the year. But according to some business analysts, uh, Iliad has signed already 300,000 users in its first month in the country, with uh, Wintre being the hardest hit company in terms of losing its uh, existing clients. Luca, let's get into some of the topical stories of the Italian telecommunication market then. So let's start from Telecom Italia. Recently, there's literally been a battle to win the company's governance. Could you tell us more about that? Yes, there's been a hell of a fight, uh, to, be, to be honest with you. So uh, let's take a step back. Uh, Telecom Italia's main shareholder is uh, Vivendi, which is a French uh, mass media conglomerate with uh, 27.5 billion uh, market capitalization, which owns slightly less than 24% of Telecom Italia. Last March, Elliot, the investment fund, bought a 9% stake in Telecom Italia, which has now been reduced to a 5% stake. The question is, what did they actually do and why did they do it? So first and foremost, Elliot orchestrated a frontal attack against uh, Vivendi, blaming the French group for failing to deliver returns to Telecom Italia's shareholders, despite the company's improving performance since 2016 and an expected higher cash generation. I say expected higher cash generation as cash has never been so far um, absorbed. Uh, cash has been absorbed by a 16 billion capex in network since 2014, which is supposed to start declining from 2019. So Elliot accused uh, Vivendi of having eroded the relationships with the Italian institutions and of a trouble, to say the least, uh, governance uh, structure, which has not created value for shareholders. But um, uh, what did uh, Elliot want to do? Basically, it's three main things. The first is the separation and partial sale of Telecom Italia's network assets into a new vehicle called Netco. The second is the conversion of Telecom Italia's non-voting preference shares into common shares, which would dilute Vivendi's stake to 18%. And the third is the partial or full sale of subsidiaries Sparkle and Inuit. All this, according to Elliot, would lead to a deleveraging uh, of the capital structure, a potential repricing of the company to about 6.5 times EBITDA from current 5.5 times EBITDA, and a possible restatement of dividends for shareholders. So Elliot present, presented a first draft of its plan, which was very, very aggressive. For example, it said that Telecom Italia's uh, target ownership of the network assets company, the so-called Netco, would have been between 25% and 75%. Then it retracted its statement and said the group is expected to maintain a majority stake in its network assets company and estimated the value of the Netco to be in the range of 10 billion to 25 billion and said that a dividend restatement would take place only after Telecom Italia gets upgraded to investment grade. So after all this, what did uh, Vivendi say? It replied that Elliot's strategy aims to dismantle Telecom Italia and does not have a long-term strategy for the business. The battle finished on the 5th of May when Elliot won uh, a two-month uh, fight against Vivendi and managed to elect 10 of its members on the company's board compared to five from Vivendi. Elliot's list was voted uh, by 49.84% of the company's shareholders, including Cassa Depositi e Prestiti, which is an Italian state-backed uh, bank which owns 4.9% of the business. Right, Luca. So why do investors believe Telecom Italia is so interesting? 
Well, for a number of reasons. Uh, the first one, especially on the equity side, it's because it's cheap. Uh, its shares trade at uh, 65 cents, bringing market cap to 13.3 billion euros and enterprise value to 42.9 billion euros. This brings the EV multiple to five times below 5.2 turns of uh, Telefonica, for example, 6.7 times of Wind3 and uh, don't forget that Elliott goals of uh, uh, 6.5 uh, times uh, EBITDA uh, multiple. Um, Telecom Italia's long-dated uh, bonds are trading with a higher yield compared to similar uh, other flagship European telecoms bonds, for example, those of Telefonica. Also, Telecom Italia has some equity-linked notes that could offer some upside if things go as, uh, as planned. Uh, but let's talk a bit about uh, Wind3 now. Uh, you, Ben, are the expert about it. So uh, Wind3 is another Italian telecom company that, uh, according to certain subscribers, was a popular short. Um, however, earlier this week, the bonds rallied uh, 15 points. Uh, can you tell us more about the whole situation? So given Wind3 was one of the popular shorts just a week ago, this was really a shock to the market. CK Hutchison reached an agreement to purchase Vion's 50% share of the CK Vion JV for 2.45 billion. And this values the equity of Wintre at 4.9 billion euros. So this also translates into EV uh, of 14.6 billion for the company and EV multiple of 6.7 times, uh, which trumps Telecom Italia's EV multiple of five times and, and uh, also uh, Telefonica's 5.2 times, and compares quite well uh, to the Elliott's uh, public valuation goal of 6.5 times. Uh, so Wintra boasts a 10.4 billion capital structure, which is split between three billion term loan, which matures in 2022, ahead of the notes. Uh, so there are four of them, four senior secured notes, uh, which mature between 2023 and 2026. Uh, net debt stands at 9.7 billion with uh, leverage of 4.4 times, which is one turn above Telecom Italia and roughly in line with Altis France. So here is the short thesis. The company was under pressure as Iliad was due to enter the market with offers at below competition's offering. And this is the signature move of Iliad, which uh, disrupted the French market so much. Now the difference, as Luca mentioned, is that the Italian tariffs have already been much lower uh, compared to France, and they continue to be under pressure for months ahead of Iliad's entry as the big players look to preempt the impact of the notorious price cutter. Now, how Wintra differentiates from the rest of the market is that it refuses to participate in this dynamic. And numerous times the management stressed on the company call that the focus is on the offering and the breadth of the offering rather than the price. And the way Wintra is looking to do this is on a regional basis. So basically focus on the areas where it can move the needle, offer the customers, uh, whether it's more data, more minutes, uh, and, and look, to, look to basically trump the competition that way. So moreover, the company had significant exposure to ZTE and, uh, and it has been uh, exposed to this uh, a trade war between US and China uh, and there's also political risk on the rise in Italy. So it was perfect storm really for the company. And uh, KPIs have been on the decline as a result of the competition. And there's even been further pressure mounted by MVNOs, which look to gain a foothold in the market. And, and the market share of MVNOs is actually much lower in the Italian market compared to something like UK, uh, let's say. So, so there is definitely kind of uh, this, uh, this willingness on the MVNO side to 
to to basically take some market share away from the from the current champions. So to improve its struggling network, the company was relying on ZTE uh, in a strategy to invest into network improvements, locking in the valuable customers, especially the triple and quadruple play uh, customers um, in, its, in the convergence strategy. Uh, however, this is now being delayed, uh, which uh, really exposes the company to competition. And while this is partially mitigated as Iliad runs on the Wintra network, so the two are competing on price and offering rather than the quality of the network, but the rest of the competition does not face these constraints. And they are in a good position to consolidate their own customer bases. And again, as Luca mentioned, uh, both Telefonica and Telecom Italia also launched their low-cost offerings. So, so it's really race to the bottom at the moment. Iliad's taking... Uh, 1% uh, market share uh, from Wintre would result in about a 0.1 turn uh, increase in leverage as EBITDA is eroded. So, so there's also this effect. And, and look, uh, Iliad is looking to take at least 10%, which, uh, which is its break-even level. So, so there is definitely uh, this to take, uh, keep in mind as well. And uh, look, while all, this of, all of this sounds like doom and gloom, we haven't mentioned that the company... Uh, the company has further synergy benefits to squeeze uh, squeeze out from uh, from the wind and tra uh, joint venture, uh, which might mitigate uh, the financial impacts of the competition and delays to network upgrades partially, at least in the short run. So it definitely gives it uh, gives it uh, some leeway uh, to, to to turn around. So the notes traded down to 80s as a result of all of this uh, since their issuance in November, and this brought the yield on the on the euro notes uh, to about six percent. Uh, while the U.S. notes yielded uh, in mid-8s. And while this is not dramatic, the yield uh, compares uh, to the European uh, High Yield Index, which was around 3% at the time, and uh, Altis France appear with similar leverage, uh, which was yielding about 4%. Thanks, Ben. So now wind trend notes trade uh, at around 95, uh, but the future scenarios are not much clearer. Can you please tell us a bit more about uh, what's going on? Right, Luca, well, that's right on the money. Essentially, other than the ownership change, which has a lot of implicit implications for the company, the issues of the company, such as, uh, such as the, the network, which is uh, uncomparable to its uh, competitors, as well as, uh, the, as, as well as Iliad's entry and, uh, and the fierce competition persist. Now, CK Hutchison has deep pockets with very low leverage at 1.6 turns and 16 to 17 billion in cash. And purchase of the residual 50% of the JV signals willingness to back the company. It's, it was at a very high multiple. It's uh, above the 6.5 uh, times that Elliot uh, is looking uh, to bring Telecom Italia to. And it signals, uh, signals confidence. Uh, but the company has very high leverage. And uh, there's, a, there's definitely fairly long-term horizon when it comes to uh, reaping the return on, in this, on this investment, given that a lot of investment into infrastructure has to be done on Wind's side to preserve its uh, its place in the market. Now, CK Hutchison might look to reduce leverage of the business, and uh, and also, furthermore, the investment itself is is, is, a, is a signal to creditors about potential future support should the company suffer in the short run. Uh, however, again, none of this is confirmed, and uh, and all of this is uh, implicit in uh, in CK Hutchison buying out the remaining fifty percent. 
Now, Hutchison might also uh, to, might consider to do this through an equity injection. It, uh, it might then look to refinance the notes uh, once momentum is regained and the network is back on track, but this will take time. It could also issue new bonds uh, or you know, proceed with an intercompany loan afterwards uh, with the proceeds of the bonds or with cash and provide a, or provide a parent company guarantee. Now, as, as I mentioned, the problem with the WinTra, especially with the network is that uh, it is looking to lock in the, valu the valuable kind of triple play, quadruple play convergent customers. And, uh, and the network actually is, uh, is worse compared to the competition. And, uh, and is also not willing to uh, compete on price. Uh, so, so it's kind of uh, stuck, uh, stuck between these two factors and it needs to find its way out. So now uh, to another Southern European troubled company, the Greek vessel Lesser Danaus entered into a restructuring agreement on uh, the 20th of June. Uh, so Ben, can you tell us about the capital structure before the restructuring and uh, the situation? Right, so before we get into the details, Danaus um, has no outstanding public debt. And as of uh, the end of the year 2017, the company sported a hefty 2.3 billion capital structure split between 14 facilities. 99% of the facilities by amount outstanding matured on December 2018. And so the company was uh, beginning to run out of time to find a solution to the problems. Now, uh, the problems were driven by stress charter rates, uh, and we will touch on this in a second, and the leverage of the company uh, was fairly high around seven times, so uh, seven turns, so definitely, uh, prohibitive to uh, refinance at those levels without an equity injection. Now, Danaus has been uh, working to secure this deal for over a year, negotiating with creditors to resolve uh, its complicated capital structure where each facility is secured by its own vessel collateral. And uh, part of the structure uh, was, was and is severely under-collateralized, with another part being sufficiently covered. Now, in terms of being underwater, the 635 million RBS facility, 623 million HSH, ABB, PB facility, and 200 million ABN, BAML, BLM, NBG, and Sequoia facilities were the most significant, most under-collateralized facilities. RBS had only 47.3% collateral coverage, HSH facility had mere 14.5% coverage, and the ABN facility had only 34.3% coverage based on book values. Now this would probably be much less uh, uh, when it comes to market values, given that the NAUS uses long-term charter rate averages to derive its book values significantly above current rates, uh, which are not being used to stress the book values. The exact figures can be found in our tear sheet and fleet status update on the REORG website. Facilities with the most Panamax guarantors uh, as opposed to the post-Panamax ones, suffered the most as the relative value of the ships decreased once post-Panamax model was introduced, especially on a charter-free basis. So on the sport, mar the, the sport market rates for these is, uh, is very low uh, and it has declined significantly. So some of these continue to benefit from attached charters which have been, which have been negotiated back when, the, back when the rates were much higher. But, uh, but these charters are be beginning to run off and, uh, and increasingly expose the company to the, to the Panamax market. And so to really show the binary collateral distribution, 170 million of 2011 debt was collateralized by 1.5 billion of book value in vessels, 
while 2.13 billion of new bank agreement debt was collateralized only by 1.2 billion. Again, the most hit banks were the ones mentioned above. So what the Danaus restructuring deal look like? Well, the restructuring agreement will result in new credit facilities amounting to 1.6 billion, maturing on December 2023, so essentially pushing out the maturities by five years, reducing debt by 551 million. The company will also partake in debt for equity swap, resulting in issuance of 99.3 million new shares, representing 47.5% of the outstanding stock. Danaus expects to use commercially reasonable efforts to execute uh, an offering of common stock for at least 50 million within 18 months of closing date. And Danaus Investment Limited has committed to backstop 10 million worth of the issuance to the extent that proceeds are less than 50 million. The new credit facilities are expected to have quarterly fixed and variable amortization payments, representing about 85% of the free cash flows from the vessel securing those facilities. And the rate payable under the new facilities is LIBOR plus 250 basis points, up from 185 basis points above LIBOR previously. So essentially, there are not many free cash flows available to the equity holders, uh, as, uh, as these are all collected under cash sweeps. And... Uh, the company is covering its maintenance capex, so there's uh, there's definitely no growth going on, and the lenders are getting some extra recovery in terms of uh, increased uh, interest rate. So, a 282 million portion of the two facilities will incur additional peak interest of four percent, and these facilities might be the RBS and HSH facilities, uh, because so these were the two most underwater facilities, and in order to incentivize uh, incentivize these two lenders uh, to commit to a, to a restructuring where they're very likely right of a significant uh, portion of their holding, the rest uh, of the capital structure had to sweeten a deal for them very likely. Um, so the covenants under the new facilities include uh, minimum collateral to loan value coverage, uh, minimum liquidity of 30 million, net leverage uh, declining from 7.5 times as of December 2018 to 5.5 uh, turns uh, in 2023, interest coverage of 2.5 times, and minimum consolidated market value adjusted net worth of negative uh, 510 million, uh, increasing to 60 million by 2023. So each of the new credit facilities ex is expected to be secured by customary shipping industry collateral, which includes vessel mortgages, earnings accounts, and stock pledges. The facilities will also benefit from corporate guarantees. Now, the corporate guarantees are very interesting, uh, and they, they provide uh, leverage to the underwater creditors. So one such scenario is when the underwater creditors threaten uh, the, uh, the rest of the capital structure to, to trigger cross-default. And, and uh, when this is done, basically, vessels uh, that, uh, that are security for, for all of the lenders would lose uh, value because their attached charters uh, would be taken away. Uh, the, the vessels would have to be uh, chartered on the spot rates, uh, which are significantly below the actual charters that the company has. So, so the corporate guarantees definitely do provide, uh, do provide some leverage to the underwater creditors that would like to negotiate. And they very likely did to the RBSA and HSH. Um, so, so Danaus uh, will also not be allowed to pay dividends under the new credit facilities until Danaus receives 50 million net cash proceeds from the common stock offerings, which we've mentioned previously. 
and the first installment of amortization payable after the refinancing under each new credit facilities in connection with the agreement is paid in full. Could you quickly flesh out how we got here and whether the issues will persist or not? Sure, so a quick background of the situation. Uh, the NAUS is a vessel lessor that generates value by leasing vessels under long-term charters, or at least that was the idea, uh, basically thus limiting its exposure uh, to the spot market, locking in favorable rates in the past. Uh, and the problem right now is that these are unwinding and there's an increased exposure to the spot market exactly what the company was trying to avoid. Now, in fact, above 60% of the charters are due to expire in the next two years, and this will switch to much lower spot rate. So the company got in trouble uh, as Hanjin went bankrupt and canceled charters on eight vessels, five of which were Panamax, which as we've mentioned, are much more exposed to the weak spot market. The lost charter revenue was about 500 million of the 2.8 billion total contributed revenue at the time. The company was further pressured by HMM's renegotiations of charters, contracts by 20%, resulting in revenue falling about 23% from peak in 2012, and EBITDA margin contracting about five points to about current 68%. Now, eventually, the company's main risks uh, are the spot rates as charters unwind, which were 25% of the 15-year historical averages for the bigger vessels and 20% for the smaller vessels, which uh, basically says uh, there was a 65 sorry, 75 to 80% contraction for these. And also the company has significant exposure uh, to its three major clients, which are HMM, which previously renegotiated contracts down, CMACGM and Yangming, uh, these three representing 79% of the revenue. While rationale of the company is that it's protected from the shipping market volatility by securing long-term charter rates, its strategy is only as good as the creditworthiness of its clients as HMM and the Hanjin situation showed, especially given the concentration of, uh, of revenue to the three main clients. Thanks, Ben. Uh, so let's uh, talk about one of our regulars uh, credit uh, here, uh, Noble. So Ben, last time you spoke about, about it, the company's restructuring plan was facing opposition from Goldilocks. So what's the most recent update here? Right, the gift that keeps giving uh, Noble on June 20, the company secured support of Goldilocks, the 8.2% Abu Dhabi shareholder for its restructuring plan. And this was done by increasing shareholder equity distribution under the plan to 20%. So just to remind everyone, creditors will receive 70%, shareholders 20%, and the management was downsized from previous 15% to 10%. As a result, both Goldilocks and Noble have withdrawn their respective claims in court against each other and Goldilocks will be able to nominate one board member in the newly reorganized company. So nodes have traded up in response to the news and are now quoted about 45, implying uh, value through them uh, at about 1.5 billion. If every creditor of the 3.5 billion capital structure participates in the funding uh, of the new 700 million trading facility, the creditors will receive 1.5 billion in reinstated debt split between 700 million asset co-bond 685 million trading co-bond and the structurally subordinated 270 million trading co-bond. Uh, they will receive further 90% of 200 million preference shares in the asset co and 70% of equity in the top co. The distribution changes, however, based on the risk participation in the new trading facility by the existing senior creditors. The trading company itself is projecting to deliver about uh, 175 to 200 million in EBITDA. And while given uh, the high interest rates, a lot of this uh, is not being 
paid in cash at first. So uh, while the net income will not be significantly positive, the company will generate cash flows to, to build some capital base for the company. Now, there is also um, the cash balance that the company had at the end of the first quarter, which was uh, 677 million. And uh, it's unclear how much of this will uh, go to the new vehicle, how much of uh, this will be burned in cash, how much of it will be uh, going to the, to the advisors in the restructuring. So it will remain to be seen. Uh, but the company projects that it will need around 500 million in cash uh, for its uh, operations. Uh, so it, it might be that a significant part of this will be funded through uh, the previous cash balance. And uh, given the high potential cash balance and uh, EBITDA projections, which have not been proven yet, but there could actually be equity value flowing uh, to the creditors from the new company also. And on the asset co side, uh, there's Harbor Energy, uh, which has uh, been written up uh, recently. It's highly sensitive to oil prices, and you know it's asset like this that could also deliver further recovery through the asset co. Now, separately, Noble and Abu Dhabi Financial Group uh, will work together to expand Noble's footprint in the Middle East, which is just um, a way to extract some cash and some returns uh, from Noble this way uh, to recoup its investment. And uh, as such, Noble subsidiary Noble Resources International has entered into a strategic partnership agreement with ADCM Resources. And the, the contract basically uh, looks at uh, participation together uh, to enter the Middle Eastern market. And there is a fee of 3.5 million uh, attached to the, to, the, uh, to the Abu Dhabi Financial Group uh, for initial four-year term. And then there are further annual payments, uh, which are uh, which are subject to generation of positive net income from the uh, from their venture in the Middle East. Thank you very much. And now back to New York. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Rio Research podcasts on our media page, or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Karen Lung, and this has been the Week in Reorg. Music